turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them they're still letting us record. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. And you're listening to the Marketing Millennials. All right. We've got a brand marketing guru on the pod today. With an impressive background in scaling startups and increasing multi-million dollar growth, give it up for Becca Sadwick, founder and managing partner of Strategica Partners, a go-to-market strategy consulting agency. Becca, welcome to the Marketing Millennials. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we are happy to have you. You have been someone we've been wanting to talk to for quite some time. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Really great. Thanks for having me. Yes. So there's no doubt you're a pro marketer, but we have to know, how did you first get started in marketing? It's a great question. I actually didn't plan to. I never even planned to go into the private sector at all. Really? But I kind of fell in love totally accidentally and got introduced to an amazing opportunity with a little education startup that no one had ever heard of at the time um, and found the scale and the autonomy of it to be amazing. So I actually started in public policy and thought that would be the best way to have an impact at scale, affecting policies that change millions of people's lives. And I totally believe that's true. But when you're in the day-to-day, it's not quite as fast-paced or quite as autonomous as being in the private sector and startups especially where you can have an idea one day and just implement it to affect all of your users in a matter of days or even hours. And so I totally fell in love with it. I got started in marketing, like I said, totally by accident. I was working on some public policy research that impacted this education startup in LA. CEO got in touch about just informal advising on the communication side, did that for a few months. And before I knew it, I was their first marketing hire uh, with no marketing experience. And really all I could do with no marketing experience and no budget was listen to the users and lean on their content and their stories, which turned out to be a best practice and actually turned out to be kind of a differentiator as far as coming into an industry saturated by established competitors because they were all following a playbook Mm -hmm. and I didn't know the playbook. And so all I could do with no budget and no experience was just listen to the users and make them our stories. And so What I didn't have words for became a user-generated content and community-focused marketing strategy, but that was just all I could do and all I knew. And it actually, especially in an industry that's skeptical of marketers, it was really the right approach because it made their stories and their successes and their priorities our priorities. And so it was the foundation of a very authentic brand because all we could do was put them at the center of it. That is unbelievable. First off, what a beautiful notion that you wanted to start by making an impact and then your navigation into marketing in and of itself. I think that's so nice to have people like you in this industry who approach it from the perspective of listening and actually hearing what sort of the users and audience really want. What kind of feedback were they giving you when you first started? 
they were telling us what they cared about and what they didn't care about and what their priorities were. And so that just became a really compelling content strategy, especially at a time when the industry was pretty skeptical of vendors and marketers. And so they were just saying things like how the product worked for them. And it became an amazing case study, which I didn't have the words to describe at the time. So yeah, basically all we could do is talk about what they were doing and what they were hearing and saying and things that they didn't, they didn't realize we would find especially compelling. That's unbelievable. Were you guys having direct conversations with them or were you guys utilizing kind of a multi-pronged approach? Was social listening available yet? Yes. Social listening was definitely something we utilized. I didn't have a term for it. I just basically was pretty manual initially until we discovered Brand24, which was fun. Um, And having these direct conversations via email, going in person. And I was so surprised because when we would go, we were selling to schools. And so when we would go on site at schools, we would have a million ideas a visit. We would hear things that would be feedback for the product and for the, the creative and colors they liked and just the way they talked and the way they communicated. And I always thought it was so funny that these school administrators would thank us. They would say, oh, thank you so much for coming. No one cares to come. And we were just thinking, this is amazing. They're giving us their time and this insight into how our products work in mm-hmm. person. Uh, but they were grateful for it. And so that was really a learning that I didn't realize wasn't a universally known concept either. I hear a lot of founders and a lot of marketers say they're worried about bothering or inconveniencing and needing to incentivize customers to take their time. But really, my experience was that they were excited to have us there and they felt like we valued them by coming. And it was true, but they were really excited by it. And so that really became the foundation for not being afraid to ask for on-site visits and in their time. Oh my gosh, what an amazing kind of first foray. (laughs) It's so interesting that because you didn't have any of that marketing experience, how did you take that brand side and turn it into sales? Because that's ultimately at the starting year to get revenue through the door. So how did you approach that? So it became the foundation of really compelling sales enablement and unique value propositions. Again, words I didn't have at the time, but we would hear, they would hear what people were saying. So that was good feedback for us. We would hear what customers were saying at scale and what some kind of these open rates look like around certain keywords, around what content was being shared, et cetera. So it was this really healthy bi-directional feedback loop wherein they would say anecdotally, this is what I'm hearing from this size school district in this region over and over and over again. And we would say, these are the kinds of performances we're seeing from this keyword, this kind of content, this kind of format, maybe try sending this. And so it was really a pretty rich and pretty organic feedback loop of they would hear things more often. We would hear things at scale and we kind of collaborated on what that meant in the big picture. Cool. When did you start deciding that you wanted to make another marketing hire? Cause obviously you couldn't do that all on your own. No, it's a great question. Um, so it was pretty painful for a while. And I think that I kind of took on this unhealthy hero complex of, oh, I just needed to work longer hours. I could do it all, et cetera. And I think the shift really came of just needing to be scaling as quickly as the company and the products were. And so initially I knew how to write a blog article, so I didn't think we needed a content writer, right? I knew how to do X, Y, and Z, so I didn't think we needed that. There was a tool that was cheap, et cetera. It really came down to being smart about scaling and making sure that our team scaled with the impact that we wanted. And it took me a while to realize we had to get ahead of it. So we were kind of hiring initially for pain of if something was so painful that I couldn't do it, then we would make the hire. But that took a while. It wasn't that efficient. Didn't mean we were hiring the best people, et cetera. And so it really just became a question of looking at 
how we would scale with the vision that we had. It kind of coincidentally, helpfully uh, aligned with launching new products. So when I came on, there was one product. Within a few months, there were two. And then we doubled the product line for the first three years I was there. And so there's only so much one person could do. Um, and it really came down to also listening and reading a lot of smarter marketers and what they said grew their team, the first hires they made, et cetera. And so it was really, I think it's amazing that we live in a time when anyone can create and share their experiences and we're all the beneficiaries, right? People will just share their brain for free. And so listening to these smarter marketers about what it took to scale a team and make sure they're staying ahead of the impact they wanted to have, that's when I decided. And having the, the couple new products too was helpful. That's awesome. Yeah. One of my favorite marketers said that your first hire should be like a generalist. So they know everything. And then you hi start hiring for your weaknesses. So I bet mm -hmm. like that's something like you started like your pain points and stuff that you didn't want to do. You had to start hiring for. So that's awesome on your side for doing that. What took you to from this Go Guardian to ultimately deciding to start a consultancy? It's an interesting question. And I realized that my career path looks kind of crazy from the outside, but was totally obvious and linear and just very push-based from the inside. So through being at GoGuardian, which was a wonderful high-growth company, we really had and is continuing to have tremendous impact in the field, I came across a lot of other earlier stage startups, sometimes even later stage startups with brilliant domain expert founders, incredible products, and just clearly were doing great things in their field. And I found myself asking over and over, why is this not everywhere? Why have I not heard of this? I would totally use this. And just kind of saying that and thinking that and then informally consulting and advising some people that I knew on the side while I was still in-house. But finally, I came across this ed tech company that was founded by these three neuroscience PhDs, all former college professors. And they had created this AI-based algorithm that could take the contents of any textbook and make it into a 3D interactive lesson. So kids could split atoms, dissect cadavers, walk on the moon. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. But you've never heard of it. And I had never heard of it. And I found myself saying, this is amazing. Why is this not everywhere? Why haven't I heard of this? This should be in every school in the country. This would be an amazing equalizer. And the answer came down to go-to-market strategy. They didn't know how to conceive of their audience. They didn't know how to reach them. They didn't know how to scale that. And so when we were talking through some of the things they had tried for sales and marketing, it was no wonder that it hadn't scaled. But by the time we met, they were 12 years in. They were done, 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 done. They wanted out. They wanted to be acquired. And I found myself trying to convince these founders. I said, look, if you give it three years, we could scale this. This would be amazing. Just, just three years, 18 months. Come on, six months. Let's give it something. But they were so done by that point that they just wanted to get acquired. And they ended up selling the company for not that much to a hedge fund that's essentially just kind of fragmented it into three different industries at this point. And that was really my push because I honestly believe that product could have been in every school everywhere and changed kids' lives and changed generations of making kids more curious. And I realized that the scale of the impact and the, the very foundational critical decisions that are relatively few made at these earlier stages are so foundational for the trajectory. And that was finally my push to say, Okay, as wonderful it is to be iterative and late stage, there really are foundational decisions that are made early stage that can change the trajectory. And if I were to work with more of these companies hands-on full-time, then who knows what they could do and who knows how they could grow. And so that was finally just the push to do this full-time all-in. Did your focus stay to impact first companies or are you still really just startup generalized? 
Every company we work with, I really believe, has the potential to change people's lives and impact their industry, but it looks different. So for a biotech diagnostic company we're working with, that's very healthcare focused and democratizing access to currently expensive tests, which I think is amazing. But we also work with Facebook's social impact partnerships team, which I also believe has the tremendous impact to support nonprofits at scale. And so it looks very different. The scale and stage is pretty different. The industries are pretty different too, mm. but we genuinely believe that they have the potential to change society and people's lives. And that's why, like, for example, the social impact partnerships team really focuses on serving nonprofits. And so as the backbone of social impact work, we think that's amazing. Have you guys had any big, big wins so far or yet or things that you're excited about? I would say so. I say that seeing seeing numbers change as significantly as they tend to with relatively little impact of just resegmenting the market, repositioning, using that as the foundation for the marketing and branding and even product roadmap strategy, seeing how significantly that changes retention and adoption and shortened sales cycles. That's really, really, really exciting. And seeing how it changes funding trajectories and the reach and getting in front of people who are in a position to see the value of it's been fun. Do these companies that you're working with share this excitement in these kind of beginning stages because they kind of are feeling the same, not excitement, but success coming to them with your help? Usually, yes. I would say the vast majority of the time, the founding teams are really excited and excited to scale and believe in the vision and the product they're building. I would say sometimes there's this minority skepticism of marketing, though, especially among more technical I don't want to say positions, but sometimes there's just a sense of, oh, marketing is selling shoes online. We don't need that. We have a better product. Um, it's usually minority. Usually when we just put the customers at the center and really elevate their perspectives and really bring a lot of quotes and data back that some of these teams haven't seen before, that usually ends the very short-lived skepticism. But yes, the excitement is usually palpable. These teams believe in what they're building. They've gone all in, made all kinds of sacrifices. And so it's lots of fun to scale with them. You're intelligent, but you have such a great energy, especially when you speak. I can't imagine sort of first introductions with you. I'd be like, where do I sign? <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> it's, it's fun. Yeah. And sometimes just, again, it's just bringing the data back to, to skeptics of if we think we know our study. I often say that a little bit of exposure can be worse than no exposure because we think we understand more than we do and we tend to extrapolate. And so sometimes just bringing back more quotes, more data, more case studies, and just just more use cases beyond the realm of the current team, that can be the difference between the truly palpable excitement and then nothing can stop it from there. What do you think the, the biggest problem you see going into these these companies? Like, what do you see the gap? Is there anything common that you see with these startups? Yeah, I would say most teams are not aware of the assumptions they're making because they don't know how to see things any differently. And there's a lot of assumptions, especially teams with lots and lots of quantitative data. They think they understand why they're seeing the trends that they're seeing. They'll say, oh, we ran this campaign, launched this product, this changed externally, made this acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. And then we saw this. So what we need to do is this. But there's usually a lot of inference happening that isn't what we care to replicate. So in a lot of assumptions around why people are buying, why people are staying, what brought them there. And I usually find this because companies often are confusing product, market, and customer research. And they'll go out and they'll say things like, 
hi, my name is Emily. I work for a company called Acme and we do X, Y, and Z. Can I talk to you about these three problems? And then they'll say, see, all our customers could talk about were these three problems. And it's most likely, yes, that the customers have those three problems, but it's also possible they have two bigger ones that we never even got to because by virtue of saying what our company does, we biased every response from there on out. And so I often see companies say, oh yeah, we have the buyer's journey down. We have the user journey down. We understand all of our users, et cetera, especially in B2B, right? User and buyer is often not interchangeable. Buyer and customer are not interchangeable. And so this idea that just kind of talking to customers without any kind of cohort segmentation, without any kind of pattern development is just the research that's needed, I think leads to a lot of really unfounded and costly assumptions that we'll never really have any clear counterfactuals for because these are very senior level mistakes that are pretty invisible, unlike the very junior level mistakes that tend to be very, very visible, right? A junior dev takes down the site, everyone knows about it. An executive makes the wrong decision. We never, ever have a counterfactual for that. We never know what that costs. And so a lot of this kind of mediocre linear or stagnant growth, I think really comes down to these assumptions where people think they've done research they haven't, or they've listened selectively, or they've used synonyms that the market doesn't think are synonymous. And things go exactly fine. We grow kind of stagnant, kind of slow, kind of steady, because yes, the market does care about it. They do like the product, but we've missed something to care about more by virtue of just slanting the conversation. And that's where we hear things like, oh yeah, our customers love the product. They say they pay way more for it, but we don't know why we're not growing faster. And it's probably there's something around this friction that hasn't been codified or the priorities that haven't been captured. My mom used to work in nonprofits and she used to say that every nonprofit thinks their cause is the most important. I also think every marketer thinks their product is the most important. So this idea that people will pay attention to us and remember what we said because we said it, I think is really just a misunderstanding of the influence we actually have in the market, which isn't that much. So how would you go out and conduct this research to find the correct customers, to find the correct pain points, to find what they actually care about? So letting the behavioral and in-app behavioral differences define the segments initially is, is the first step. So I find that a lot of market segmentation, cohort segmentation, however you want to describe it, persona development is very, very demographic. Companies at this size and this role, this age, this region, this gender, et cetera. And usually there's a lot more crossover psychographically and especially network driven that we don't really capture from that. So making sure that we've segmented the market appropriately is the first step. Looking at the data we can based on the behavior of who's clicked on what, who's opened what, who spends time in these features, et cetera. That's where I like to start. And then talking to those customers with while saying as little about what we want to talk to them about as possible. So ensuring anonymity, ensuring the data will be used in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. They know who we are. They know our product, et cetera. And then asking those people at the end of these interviews with as open-ended of questions as possible and as few questions going in as possible. I usually like to start with no more than five to 10 for a 30 to 45 minute interview because I find that the insights are exactly two levels deeper than the question we want to ask. So usually we'll come in with a list of questions. There's often like 50 of them. And then we'll ask a question, get an answer, write it down, move on. But the insights of what we can actually replicate and what we should look to repeat is probably exactly two levels deeper. So we'll say something like, how did you hear about us? And they'll say, I heard about you on Twitter. And we'll say, okay, great. They heard about us on Twitter. But if you were to say, 
what were you doing on Twitter before that happened? Who do you typically follow? What account did you come to? Were you mindlessly scrolling? Were you following a hashtag, et cetera, et cetera? Exactly two levels deeper from whatever they've said is the insight. Because it's either we need to continue trending for a certain hashtag, certain micro-influencers are more important than others, certain small networks are, right? And so if we were to just leave it at that, or if we were to say, how do you find out about new products or how do you buy them? And they say, listen to podcasts. Podcast check isn't the answer. Okay, which podcast do you listen to? When are you listening to them? Why? What are you listening for? Et cetera. Because all of that tells us something very different. Because if they're listening to Oprah's podcast, it's very different than if they're listening to marketing millennials, right? And so oftentimes we come in with such a long list of questions that we keep moving. And I think that that's really the mistake of coming in with too many questions that kind of bias the conversation rather than letting it flow. Because we do need to keep it kind of focused, but a lot of the, the tangents are where the insights are of the keywords that they care to say, the patterns that they're going to be saying for us, the problems that they'll reveal, we often capture them with synonyms. And working with a, a client that was positioning themselves as the most reliable solution in the market, and it turns out that their customers really cared about the most accurate solution. They wanted the most accurate solution. And so I came back and said, hey, here's the research. They really care about accuracy. And the team's response was, oh, we know. That's why we say they're, we're the most reliable. And in their minds, accurate and reliable were interchangeable. But in the market's minds, they weren't. And I find this happens a lot of things that we think are interchangeable, we think are synonymous, the market doesn't. And so we think we're listening, but we're not really. And so starting with this customer research is, is really foundational. And then asking customers, are there two other people you think we should talk to is really great because that's a good segue into people in their networks who may or may not be customers. So they could be potential buyers, that could be prospects, that could be general market research if they never heard of us. And then if they'll make the introduction and say as little about us as possible, that's the best way to go because they're not filtering their answers then through the lens of what we want to hear. And they're more receptive to this conversation. They're more likely to be engaged, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's the, the order we typically like to go through, starting with the data of how we segment it, making that the foundation of our target market segments and hypotheses, making that the foundation of the customer interviews, and then making that the foundation of the market research interviews. How do you feel about the like the customer writes your copy, like that statement? Like, Because I feel like that's exactly, like, I think a lot of marketers make the mistake of putting these fancy like words in the piece of paper or saying, being trying to be clever when they just trying to be the person who's coming to your website just wants to be like understood and understand what you're talking about. And I think the perfect way to do that is take the word like accurate, like they're saying the word accurate, they're not saying the word reliable and put it on the forefront of your website. So I feel like that's what you've been doing. Like when you first started yeah, I love that. I think that the customer writes a copy is, is a great approach. I also think that that exact sentiment kind of spills over into other problematic executive-based decisions too, right? We think we have to create the product roadmap, have the answer, know what incentivizes customers. But if you were to just ask them, right, thank you so much for your time. How can we uh, incent uh, what would make this a good use of time for you? They may say they want a hoodie or they want exclusive access to something or they want something else. But so many times we get so complicated with, oh, we need this kind of gift card for this kind of interview, et cetera, et cetera. And we fundamentally inverted the actual process that a buyer would go through when deciding whether to give us their time and money. And so oftentimes these incentive structures in the research process itself is fundamentally inverting the mindset that we're trying to preserve. So instead of a customer deciding to give you money, you've kind of just become an employer 
giving them money for their time, which is nice and makes them feel good and makes the response rate go up a bit. But it also doesn't necessarily capture the authentic mindset because now they kind of want to say the right thing, whether they'll admit it or not. And they kind of feel beholden to you, whether they'll admit it or not. And so we've lost it. And so I really find as much as we can preserving the authentic mindset, yes, leveraging their words for our copy is brilliant. Leveraging just the authentic mindset coming in is great and and really foundational. And then not making assumptions around what they think or care about. I think that's where you see a lot of really aspirational copy that's just confusing. That's all kind of like superlative and la-di-da. You'll have the best life ever with our product. But you're like, but what do you do? Right? And that just, I think, comes from being too clever for your own good. Hmm. What is the fine line between data decisions and gut feeling decisions? I think it depends on where the gut feeling came from. If the gut feeling came from someone who hasn't talked to a customer in a month and may or may not have ever been in the buyer's shoes, then I think we want to let qualitative data really supplement it. But the, I think the gut feeling really can be honed from more and more exposure to the audience and letting you put into context what you're seeing in dashboards. I, I think, it, who is it? Sean Ellis who said all of the quantitative data in the world can only tell you what people are doing. It doesn't tell you why they're doing it. And that's where I think the gut feeling of how to interpret can really be supplemented by a lot of the qualitative data and putting the quantitative data into context. Hmm. I always wanted to know if you are tracking brand strategy, like what KPIs matter? You've given us a bunch, but I mean, is there anything else that we're missing? It's a great question. There's the basic one. I don't know if I have anything really original or unique about it. I mean, there's the the basic measures of velocity and conversion and retention, all of which are great. One new one that I'll throw out that I got from, was it, was it Yusuf Banjuri of Ease? Um, I liked his word of mouth coefficient. And he said, the word of mouth coefficient is effectively tracking the rate that active users are generating new users via word of mouth, which I think is a really great testament to the brand and and how valuable and how loyal they are to it uh, if they're organically generating new users. And so his word of mouth coefficient is basically the new organic users, the ones who came from sources that that weren't paid or um, were not attributing in other ways, over the returning users plus non-organic new users. Mm. And the dependency there is that we have reliable enough attribution that we don't just have like direct coming through on our Google analytics and calling that a day. But but I think really tracking this, this organic loop is, is great. And also tracking how much of the daily, weekly, monthly active users are really driving the repeat purchases and new word of mouth growth. So those are ones that I like as well. One of my favorite things someone said the, the day was, I think Dave Gearhart said is, you know, you have a brand when someone wants to buy your swag. Yeah, totally. It's true. I bet you there's like people who like you actually told me we talked back in the day how people like really would buy like Go Guardian t-shirts and Go Guardian hats. And- oh, those socks. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. really? Would they ever? They wanted us to start an e-commerce store. So, yeah, incentivizing user interviews with socks was all the rage. People would clamor for it. And even um, our little mascot stuffed animal, people would photograph their kids on vacation with it. Absolutely. What? And it's really like a, that's a, a whole company effort, right? Because if they, the product does exactly what you've said it does and they love it and they can't get enough of it, that's a really great foundation for 
that healthy growth loop. But it's really a full company effort. The engineering team is every bit as involved as the sales and marketing teams are in that. Yeah, I think it's so cool because I mean, like, even now I think of like B2B, I know B2C, obviously, like brands are like a, a big thing. But like for B2B, like, I like want to go out and get like gong socks because I yeah. like so much. And like, I want to get like a drift shirt. And I like really want to wear that type of stuff because uh-huh. they just promote like what they personify is like something that I want to be a part of. And I think like, it's all about that, like how they personify themselves and they're really good at, and I think this is like a new age of marketing is like bringing their employees to the face and mm-hmm. their customers to the face of the company and not hiding behind something else. Yeah. And I think a lot of the hiding behind was kind of the concern of, losing an employee and losing part of the brand, right? The the concern was, oh, if they know who our community manager is and then he or she leaves, have they lost some connection to our brand? And Daniel, I actually think your point earlier is exactly why it's so important to invest in high quality swag. Get fewer items, but get high quality t-shirts that are soft and people want to wear or high quality socks or pencils or whatever it is, because that's a reflection of the brand. And I also think it's I mean, in the pre and post COVID world, what you sponsored at events too really mattered. I remember going to a big conference with a big company that you've definitely heard of and you may or may not have used their products, but you've definitely heard of them. They sponsored the Wi-Fi and the Wi-Fi was terrible and it kept crashing. And so it's kind of an unfair reflection on that brand, right? Of they just agreed to sponsor the Wi-Fi, but it kind of felt unreliable. And the same with another company that sponsored the lunch that was terrible and they ran out too soon and people had to go off site, right? It's kind of a reflection on the brand. And so it's a a longer conversation to have with executives, especially finance ones of why we need to invest in the higher quality t-shirts when the lower quality ones we can get in bulk for for lower cost, right? People don't want to wear it. It's a reflection on the brand. How do you take that brand and get every touch point to be personified with that? Because like, there's so many different touch points that you can have with a customer and you don't want one touch point. Every touch point actually matters. And I totally believe that like, whether it's a social media comment, whether it's an email, whether it's um, a direct mailer, how do you make sure that every touch point is coming clear without also having that red tape to moving fast? So I think that's exactly it is, hiring for the culture ad, training and empowerment, and and really enabling the team to understand what some of this looks like without being overly prescriptive. So the second you have a seven page long brand guideline, things have to go through legal and the engineers can't write copy, right? The second you have any of that, you've lost it. And it really just comes down to a lot of what we talked about for customers is also true of employees. Ask them what they want, involve them in the core value crafting, talk about them regularly, incentivize them to point out when their colleagues are embodying that, and then get the heck out of the way, right? An engineer discovers a new error message. Great. Maybe he or she can think of something funny or kick it over to the marketing team who can think of something funny to either redirect to the blog or have something or or have some valuable content. I think it, it comes down to every single person is going to be involved in a touch point, whether you see it or not. And if you're too in the way and you're too prescriptive and mistakes are too penalized and there's seven levels of approvals, you've, you've lost any ability to have every touch point be valid because now everyone's using the same 404 message. Everyone's using the same thank you confirmation because it's already been approved by legal. You have to get the heck out of the way. 
my question I have for you, and I, I actually haven't like figured it out because I haven't worked with a brand team for a while, but is how do you stop someone in brand from trying to write like conversion type copy? Because I feel like they're t- totally different. And a lot of brand people want to start like using these fancy words and trying to be so like cute, but like that's not what converts a lot of the time and somebody who knows what converts. So it's just like the the battle between like demand generation and brand, even though I think brand creates demand, I totally believe that. But also I don't think like brand should always write the copy for like conversion campaigns that we're having. Totally. I have two thoughts on that. The first is if you can ask questions instead of making statements, that often is the solution. So instead of saying, hey, brand manager, thanks, but that doesn't convert, you can say, oh, great. What data or best practice are you going off of for optimizing for conversions with just the goal of this copy? And then they may say, oh, actually, I'm not. Uh, the second is at a certain, st- and then that's, that's a healthy dialogue, right? They say, oh, actually, I hadn't thought about conversion rate. I didn't realize the goal of this piece was conversion rates. And now you have a dialogue. They've come to the realization. And then maybe they'll make suggestions or not. But you've kind of eroded the tension because they came to that conclusion themselves. The second is at a certain stage, maybe it's possible to A-B test some of this or run some kind of multivariant test and just let them see it for themselves. You could say, yeah, you know, thanks so much for on a small sample, if you can do like 10% of the audience and still have any kind of statistical significance, that'd be great. But you could say, thanks so much for the suggestion. We tried it. And as you can see, conversion rate went down by this percent. So we're going back to this, but thanks. Um, and then they will see for themselves that there's, there's more that's going into the objective. But I also think the piece of content's objective is also really important to anchor in because if you're trying to optimize for conversions versus trying to optimize for a, a view, a download, a pleasant touch point, a click, a link, whatever it else, whatever the goal of a piece of content is, if that's not clear, then everyone will have a different idea of what should go into it. Yep. And I also, that comes to the point is don't write copy by consensus. Like, Oh goodness. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of the things we're talking about, too, are true of any business decision. Any business decision by consensus basically means you started with two good ideas and you came to a mediocre idea. And that's just the worst, right? Anything will be polarizing if it's exceptional. And by definition, most of anything in any industry will be average or below just by numbers, right? And so is that what you're shooting for? No, of course not. So maybe it is edgy. Maybe it is polarizing. Maybe it totally doesn't work. But that's a much better place to be in culturally than somewhere that's just trying to not offend anyone ever. I wish people could listen to those words over and over and over again. (laughs) Seriously, it's wonderful to hear, but man, does that not exist everywhere. Totally. And a lot of it, I think, is just risk aversion and a, a culture of errors of omission are okay, but errors of activity or aggression aren't. Right. So if you try something new and it doesn't work, okay, we we should celebrate that we tried something new and we learned. But that really has to start top down and what the incentives are. And again, why I said that that a lot the senior level mistakes are not visible and thus aren't usually punished. Junior level mistakes of trying something new, going out on a limb, taking a risk, that's visible. And so if the culture isn't there, uh, it's tough. Yeah, and I also think, um, to Ferg's point, it comes down to trusting you, the people you hire, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it all comes down to that. For me, like, when I make a hire, it's with someone that I know could do the job, and, like, I trust them to do the job fully. I don't want to 
and they are there to make the decisions with that because I feel like they're the expert in that. And when it comes to consensus of the CEO coming up with like mm-hmm. on a brand page or like a CEO to comes up with like an email copy that is trying to convert or even like the CFO or any decision mm-hmm. by too many people in the, the building, it ruins a lot of things I've seen. It does. It crushes creativity. I mean, at what point do you continue to bring that to the table or do you just stop? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a tough place to be in, but also you almost have to fight yourself of continuing to kind of revisit that source of creativity and still at least bringing the option to the table at the very most. Even if you know it's going to get shot down, it's almost your still attempt at, you know, trying mm-hmm. something different. Totally. And exactly what we're talking about too is, true of every B2B decision, right? Of the internal buyers, priorities and incentives may be totally different than the companies. The the internal person may be taking a risk by trying a new technology, even if the company saves money, is better off, can grow, et cetera. And that's why I really think executives have to challenge themselves and ask themselves, when's the last time I talked to a customer? Because if you still think that you're more of an expert than the people whose job is to talk and interface with customers every day, then you're you're missing something. Yeah, I think every marketer and everybody in the company should talk to customers and it should be like a required thing. I think like I've gotten the most insights by just sitting on customer calls, listening to gong recordings, like sitting, mm-hmm. sitting just like having a face-to-face conversation with customers and actually hearing their pains and how the product helped. Yeah. One password out of Toronto who raised the hundred million dollar series a last year 14 years into their 11 years, some, some crazy number of years into their establishment has every single employee be a customer service rep for an hour a week. And they, right. They trust their employees to, to, and so they are talking to them, hearing what's broken, hearing what's frustrating. So everyone knows exactly what customers are concerned about for an hour a week. That is amazing. Oh, it was really cool. My world in social, I mean, every day is an unknown abyss. Like what is our customer going to present to us? A lot of times it's it's interesting to have to ask questions to learn how to even respond. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been at my company for three, almost four months now, so I'm still pretty new, but it is sometimes the best way to learn. Is mm-hmm. we, like Obviously, we're saying this right now. It's the best way to learn if you're new. It's the best way to learn if you've been stagnant for a minute. It's the mm-hmm. best way to relearn if you've been there for a long time. There's never an opportunity where you don't need to sit down and have that conversation with your customer, especially if your customer base is growing or if your customer base is changing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And what they're bringing to you on social too is really, really telling. I don't know if you found this, but there's a company, a product that I love, but their support team has trained me to go to Twitter because I know that Mm -hmm. if I email them, I will never hear back. But if I go to Twitter, Mm -hmm. I will. That's amazing. It's true though. And to be fair, maybe it's easier to have that unfiltered conversation with their customers Mm -hmm. versus a buttoned up professional conversation. Who knows? Totally. I enjoy taking it to Twitter for any (laughs) any reasons. Yeah. I saw a funny tweet of something like that said, emails support, no response calls, support, no response tweets. It's response at at support immediate response. (laughs) One second in. Yeah. Yeah. Feedback too on how the customer support is perceived by the audience too. There's all kinds of feedback that comes from what they care to talk about online. That's awesome. Yeah, I think, I mean, going back to what you said from the beginning, I think 
active listening is like one of the keys, even for everything as for marketer in general, like social reading comments, actually responding to DMS, like talking to customers. So I think that's mm-hmm. awesome. But Ferg, you want to go into our, one of our favorite parts it's of the show? It's time to have some fun. Um, Yay. We're going to play a little lightning round. It isn't necessarily like first word association, but more or less, we're going to ask some questions that kind of level the playing field. So play along if you can. If you can't, we can hop to another question. <laughs> Great. I'm going to start. What was your first job like ever? I was a babysitter. I babysat my neighbor's kids when I was 13 and it was so much fun and the best, totally the best. I mean, yeah, babysitting is a great job. Aw, seems like you've always been nurturing. (laughs) You're sweet. (laughs) What is your favorite song that gets you in the mood or artist? Anything by Walk the Moon. I feel like no matter the mood, it's right. It's upbeat or it's downbeat or it's chill or it's, you know. It's an every time sound it's a car or not or cleaning (laughs) all right what is your favorite brand currently and if you need to do top two or three we'll accept it oh so to me is a lifelong favorite of mine because I feel like I can trust them to be to look good forever um not using it as much recently but like my my purses and, and luggage I love that stuff I know it'll work forever it's functional and it's It'll work forever. So I'm totally loyal to them. Mm-hmm. I love that. What is your favorite book? Watership Down by Richard Adams is the only book that I've ever just sat and read as long as I could and then flipped it over immediately the second I finished because I just felt like the story was so compelling. Oh, my. Those are the best type of books that you want mm-hmm. to reread. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick a favorite project or even just person per se, who or what was it? Project or person that I worked on or that I know? Worked on something. Okay, let me rephrase this. So what is your favorite project that you've ever worked on? Or if you can't quite think of that, is there maybe something you've worked on with a teammate that you can give a shout out to? <laughs> yes. Launching Go Guardian Teacher, the teacher product that came out of a legacy administrative product was my favorite ever because of how evangelistic the teachers were immediately and how passionate the team was. So the the entire product came out of teacher requests and it was supposed to be a feature until it evolved into a whole product. Uh, But to this day, I I don't think I've ever seen an NPS like theirs. It's unbelievable. Teachers are evangelistic. They tweet, they have their kids involved. They love it, love it, love it. And that was the case from launch. And so it was amazing. And that product team kicked ass because they were like nine months past schedule and they did it right. And so it's super tough, tons of stress internally that came from that, but they did it right. And they launched right around suicide prevention week, which was a really amazing way for teachers and to engage with their students. And so that was awesome. Go Guardian teacher forever and ever and ever is my favorite product. Heck yeah. Who is your go-to influencer? It could be personal or professional. Jeff Chang, formerly at Pinterest, launching a new company now, is my go-to for all things growth because I feel like he is just kind of a wealth of really actionable tactical insights, which is great. Um, and together, they're like a big part of his strategy. So big fan. All right. Last one for you. What app do you use the most? Messages doesn't count, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it counts. 
<laughs> yeah, I probably use my messages app the most, but I would like to say I use my UDIS app, my disc golf app the most, but I don't. I, I you disc golf too? <laughs> Do you? So before I actually moved to California, my now fiance, we would play all the time. It was so fun. We would go to like La Cuvada, La Mirada, a lot of the like OG courses. And he would always explain it to me. It is so fun. That's awesome. Do you watch tournaments too? Because they just had a crazy one. I haven't. We're trying to get one for my mom's house. She has a bunch of land and we just mm-hmm. want like one or two just to be able to go out and like hang out outside. It seems so fun. We're obsessed. You should do that. That's a great idea. It's a great party idea too. People can just kind of toss it around and talk. I'm, That's all. Awesome. I'm competitive. I like, I get smoked. I can't wait to play <laughs> with Arlene Daniel soon. It's just fun to be outside though. Daniel can throw like hundreds of feet. It's unbelievable. Okay. Tyler can throw down. But Becca, thanks for having, thanks for coming on. And I want to leave you with this. Where could people find you right now? Where could they connect with you? Anything you want to drop right now? This is your time. Twitter's good at Rebecca Sadwick. Uh, LinkedIn too. If you put a message, I'll reply. If not, I'll probably not. So Rebecca Sadwick, either place. Nice. Well, thank you so much for hopping on and chatting all things marketing with us. I think you are a wealth of knowledge and I hope that people reach out to you because you are just full of insights. And this was a lot for me. I almost was quiet from just taking the mental notes. So we cannot wait to stay in touch with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. 